Good evening. Welcome to our Bible class at the National Capital Bible Church. Um, we are in the book of Job, and we're looking forward to getting into chapter 23 this evening. Job 23. It's a shorter chapter, so we have... Uh, Another uh, segment at the end of this, um, when we finish Job 23, we'll try to return to our study on suffering. In Psalm 23, we're told, The Lord is my light and my deliverance. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, is my uh, strength, the Lord is the strength of my life. Whom, whom shall I be afraid? And then Psalm 23 concludes, Psalm 23, uh, excuse me, Psalm 27. Psalm 23, that was verse 1, and then verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall Strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And this is going to be uh, important for Job this evening as we study uh, his, uh, his spiritual life. Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Our spiritual preparation, of course, always begins with confession of sins, if necessary. And then also relaxing, um, pushing aside, setting aside distractions so that we can uh, truly uh, understand what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us from Job 23. And then, of course... We're going to find uh, several other passages that are going to that will be important to us. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the life of Job. We're la- we're thankful that God, the Holy Spirit, has made it possible for us to uh, to learn from uh, the uh, the adversity the difficulties that he endured father we know that uh, while we have a a different perspective than job for what was happening in his life uh, he is in the same situation that we are uh, throughout our lives. Uh, there are times when we simply do not understand why uh, certain adversity, hardships uh, are occurring. But uh, we simply trust you. Trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Lean not into our understanding. In all our ways acknowledge Him, you, and you will uh, guide our paths. And we pray tonight as we study the book of, of Job, chapter 23, that we have an understanding, a better understanding of the chapter and also the lessons that we can learn from it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one quick announcement that I'd like to make is that we have been uh, experimenting with another online system, and that is Zoom. I know that many of you have already used Zoom. Tonight, we're still using our go-to-training system, but uh, we are not only experimenting with it, but we're going to try, uh, matter of fact, not try, we're going to use it on Sunday. Uh, And what that means to you is, first of all, you should ensure uh, 
that uh, Zoom has been loaded on your computer or whatever you use uh, to follow the messages. I think, again, most of you have uh, Zoom already uh, uh, ready to go should we go to Zoom. But if you haven't, uh, please ask uh, one of your children, and they can probably load it for you in a heartbeat, uh, or call one of us, and we can help you do that. Um, we believe that uh, Zoom, the the product, will um, is more effective for us. And you might even hear music on Sunday morning. That's one of the uh, our desires that will uh, that we should have. So um, we'll be uh, experimenting with it. On Saturday, you should get an email, just like you've been receiving emails uh, for, um, you should get, you'll get an email just like you would for go to training. So, uh, and if you have emails or questions or comments, please uh, send them either to Scott or to David or Bill. And uh, we'll try to answer those uh, those questions. The Book of Job. We're in the third round of speeches. Job 22 through 31. And Job, what we'll be studying last week, we uh, we studied uh, Eliphaz's comments, third speech. To Job, and now Job in uh, chapter 23 and 24, we're going to uh, study Job's reply to Eliphaz. Uh, as we begin in verse verse 20, uh, verse one of chapter 23, what we're going to um, notice is that uh, Job 23 Job 23 is not directly a an answer to Eliphaz when we arrive in chapter 24 we will see that uh, we will uh, begin to study uh, Job's response to Eliphaz but chapter 23 is not a directly is not directly an answer to Eliphaz, but it's an expression of Job's frustration, his uh, discouragement, and also his misunderstanding of what God is doing in his life. Uh, therefore, uh, actually, chapter 23 is uh, a very pleasant um, chapter, and Let's see if I have it up here. Third round of speech of the speeches, 22 to 31. All right. Job's third reply to Eliphaz, and we're going to be in Job 23 and 24. The first section here in chapter 23 is Job's desire to find God. This is a, a really a wonderful section, uh, particularly verses 2 through 7, uh, through 6. Um, and um, through 7, actually. Uh, but the last two verses, 8 and 9, are also uh, a part of that. So first of all, we'll see Job's desire to find God, verses 1 through 9. Secondly, we see Job's declaration of innocence, verses 10 through 12. And then the last few verses to verse 17, which concludes the uh, chapter 23, is Job's frustration with God's sovereignty. It's a little bit further out of the way. Now, what I'd like to do 
as as we begin um, Job 23, verses 1 through 9. I'd like to read those verses to you before we really begin an analysis of them, uh, because they are very closely tied. Uh, verse 1 simply is uh, the introduction that Job is going to answer. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. And the pronoun here, him, is God. That I might come to his seat. We'll understand that more clearly in a moment. I would present my, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and, and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No. But he would take note of me. There, the upright could reason, could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Now, that's his desire. He's wishing what will occur, but he needs to find God first. And then verse 8 and 9. Look, uh, another uh, beginning here could be notice or behold. I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he, when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. So this is our first section. And... Let's make sure that we understand the um, what J- what Job is trying to say here. Uh, verse two says, "Even today, even today, my complaint." And I think the word "complaint" here could very easily be my attitude. Uh, even today, my attitude is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Uh, the word here for hand could also be translated my power, my ability, my vitality. Uh, Job here is in great discomfort and anguish from his personal loss and uh, physical pain for which he really doesn't understand. Because Job believes he has done nothing to deserve his condition, he, therefore, is bitter. The word for hand here is probably uh, used figuratively. It's one of the most popular words through the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word yav, and it's used more than a thousand, thousand times. And while it's certainly used literally, it is also used figuratively many times. So hand here is probably used figuratively for uh, my ability, my power, my energy. Um, it could even be used uh, as f- for the body, which is uh, the uh, energy, energy level that he has in his body. So it's, I think it's used figuratively, which has become heavy. Uh, the word listless in the New King James Version uh, could be translated weighted down, uh, heavy. Uh, weary is probably another excellent word. Listless, burdensome. Uh, he's become this way because of his continual groaning, his moaning, his agony. Now, in verses 3 through 7, 
Job seeks an audience with God. Um, he seeks an audience with God um, who jo- Job describes as uh, what we would probably call a judicial magistrate. Verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, this is God, that I might come to his seat. In other words, Job doesn't know where to find God. The seat is a throne or a judicial seat, uh, which would be found in a judicial court. Verse 4, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. In other words, he says, I have much to say. Verse 5, I would know the words which he, God, would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Uh, Job says, what Job is saying here, is um, that given the chance to present his case to God, he knows how God would answer him. Uh, why does he say that? Because Job knows that it's not sinfulness that is causing this situation. Verse 6, would he contend Another word here, would he dispute with me in his great power? No, but he would take notice. He would listen to me, is uh, is what he's saying in verse 6. So Job says that God will not need all his power, all his omnipotence. Uh, If Job can be confined his way to God, God wouldn't need all his great character, omnipotence, omniscience, uh, in order to hear and act on his case. He would simply need to pay attention to Job's complaint. Job does not need an exceeding amount of power. He just wants a hearing. So Job says that God would understand and pay attention to him if he had the opportunity. Verse 7 says, There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Job is saying that the upright, and here he is inferring himself as being righteous. So the upright could reason with God and be acquitted. That's what he's saying. I would be acquitted of his erroneous sentence. Um, Job knows that he is enduring uh, hardship, but it's not because of his sinlessness or his sinfulness, which he has been accused of being. Now, uh, a quick summary here of this. Uh, in his bitterness... And his groaning, Job Job still senses, still sensed that, uh, that his affliction was weighing him down. And the word there for listlessness really has the sense of being weighed down. Uh, secondly, Job certainly wanted to turn to God, uh, but he could not find him. Since I, I've not been able, we could say, I haven't been able to reach him. Thirdly, if God, if God could be found, then Job could present his case, uh, which was, uh, he believes, uh, unjustly, uh, uh, unjustly judged we can say. Uh, Point four, faced with the facts of Job's innocence, God would no longer oppose Job with his awesome power or press charges. Uh, But now he was certain that an upright man, meaning himself, could present his case 
and the judge would acquit him and his troubles would end. So this first part is Job uh, desiring to speak with God, to present his case and present his case. Uh, verses 8 and 9 go together. Uh, Job says that he would be alleviated by his, ag- his agony by God. But here in verses 8 and 9, Job says that God cannot be found. 8. Uh, behold. I think the word notice here is a little better. Uh, New King James Version has look. So, notice. I go forward but he's not there. And backward, or we could say, and I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he, God, works. Another word that I like here, another translation, is when he acts. On the left hand, I can't behold him. I can't see him. I can't find him. When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. Now, in Semitic orientation, the person faces the sun. This is sort of interesting. When we give directions, very often in Semitic terms, the individual would face the rising sun and then give directions to the left, to the right, uh, forward or back. And that's what we have here in verses 8 and 9. So in Semitic orientation, the person faces the rising sun. Therefore, going forward is towards the east, and going to the rear is towards the west. The left is north, and the right is to the south. This is, of course, uh, a merism, meaning that wherever uh, Job looks, uh, he cannot find God. Uh, and I think this is a, a wonderful description of trying to find someone. I look all around, but I'm unable to find God or the person that you're trying to find. And of course, Job is saying he's trying to find God. This is Job expressing his frustration to God's lack of answer for his cries for help. Um, A very brief summary here. Uh, First of all, If a judge does not appear in court, cases cannot be presented to him. Because of that, uh, the judge being absent, Job searches in all directions for God, but his search is in vain. Job says that God continued to be silent, uh, to elude him is another way we could uh, describe that. Now, uh, a principle here. A principle for us today. Often we present our our desires to God, but we sense no answer. Uh, we might even wonder where God is. Is he ignoring us? And of course, the answer is no. God is not ignoring us. We must wait on God and his response. And that's why I quoted Psalm 2714 wait on the Lord uh, we need to wait on the Lord our time peace our watch our clocks uh, run on human time uh, not on God's time and so we must wait on the Lord now our second point here uh, job's declaration of independ- uh, of innocence Verses 10 and 12. Verse 10. But he, God, knows the way that I take. He knows where I am. When he has tested, uh, another word there could be examined me, I shall come forth as gold. So Job says that God knows where I am. He knows the path that I'm following. He can find me. Once God has tried me, uh, the meaning here, once he's considered all the evidence, I will be as pure as gold 
in the assayer's uh, testing. And a principle we can take from this is that God knows where we are and he knows our situation. Uh, we very often sell God short. Um, we just have this sense that whatever is happening shouldn't be occurring. And we think that for some reason God is unaware. Um, God knows where we are and he knows our situation. We must not sell God short. We are to trust in the Lord. Uh, we find that in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is an important passage for us. And for Job, we do a lot of leaning on ourselves. We are to lean on him. Uh, leaning on human support uh, will fail. We must lean on the Lord. Verse 11, my foot, and I think uh, the word here for foot could easily be my steps. Uh, my steps has held fast, or followed to his steps, or in his steps. I have kept his way, and not turned aside. So, Job is saying, my feet have followed his steps closely. Uh, I have kept his way, and not turned aside. Verse 12 says, I have not departed from the commandments, from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth, more than my necessary food. Now, the word food here in verse 12 is not found, but I, it fairly, uh, it's probably a correct insertion. Job here uh, says that he has been obedient to God's direction, treasuring his words more than my portion of food. Uh, again, food is not in the text, but the inference seems correct. Job values God's guidance more than the food that he eats each day. Uh, this is a, uh, another wonderful principle for us. Uh, God's word is very often, we refer to it as the bread of life. So it's his word uh, God's words are uh, the bread of life. But what we have to understand is that God's word is more nourishing than the finest food. Now, that doesn't mean you should go on a diet and you shouldn't eat, but you should be reading the word of God, depending upon the word of God, just as much as we do food, as a matter of fact, more so. So our summary here from those few verses is that first of all, Job felt that God was evading him. He couldn't find him. Because if God did appear in court, he, Job, uh, knows that uh, he would understand that Job had a godly path. He was following, uh, he was following a godly path and he would be declared not guilty. Secondly, Job perceives that when God finished would when God finishes with him in court, he would come forth uh, as refined like refined gold. Thirdly, uh, finishing with Job's trial in court here in verse ten uh, is probably also the very uh, the very sense of what he's saying uh, i don't know if he's really referring to the uh, assayer's uh, exam but i think what he's saying is that if uh, if god was was to examine his life he would be like uh, pure gold and i think that's what he's trying to say fourth Job would lay claim 
uh, lays claim to gold-like purity uh, in his life. And as a matter of fact, he's uh, uh, claimed that from the very beginning. Uh, why? Because he had followed the Lord closely, keeping his way. Uh, and so, uh, Job believes that uh, if he could just uh, find himself in uh, the Lord's courtroom, he would be found not guilty. And then fifth here, Job lived according to God without deviating and while obeying him and relishing each word of his. In other words, like he does food. Uh, So this is another one of uh, Job's many claims to being innocent. He, he, uh, he's not accepting of the challenge of him being, uh, guilty. Now, our third section here. Our third section, we'll try to move through this rather quickly because I want to move on to our study tonight on suffering or enduring. Uh, we're, we're seeing Job's frustration with God's sovereignty, verses 13 through 17. Uh, verse 13, but he, God, is unique. And the word here for unique is our Hebrew word, echav, and it's the word for one. Uh, so God is one. Uh, but the translation unique is fine. Uh, he is alone. He is special. Um, there is no one like God. He is one. And so uh, Job uses this phrase, God is unique. And who can make him change? Uh, and whatever his soul desires, that he does. Uh, Job wants an audience with God. But if the conditions uh, he is enduring are what he wants, then Job has some concern here. Uh, If the conditions that Job is encountering are what God wants him to to encounter, then he's concerned about seeing God. Job knows that God is perfect, and his verdicts are also perfect. So would he be challenging God's uh, already... uh, sentence, uh, his verdicts? Who can change? Who can reverse his ruling, His rulings? And that's what he says. Who can make him change? Uh, if this is God's verdict, I'm not going to be able to change him. Uh, no one can change him, not even Job. God does what he desires to do. Job doesn't want to make the situation worse. Verse 14. For he, God, performs... Um, Another translation here could be uh, completes, uh, executes. Uh, I like the word completes because that's a little better fit with the translation or fulfills. So for he, God, fulfills what is appointed, what is established for me. And many such things are with him. Uh, This last phrase is a little bit... Difficult in Hebrew, uh, but it, he's saying that many similar situations are under God's sovereign will. His plans are infinite for all of us. So, what God has determined for our lives, that is what He completes. That's what He fulfills. The principle we have here it, is that we must be thankful that God will fulfill what he has planned. God is perfect. His plan is perfect. God works in our lives to follow his plan. His plan is the best one for us. Um, In the end, Job will be blessed more than he was previously. Um, We often... We often fight God's plan, uh, his purpose for our lives. But if we trust him, our end will be better than the end. 
And this is what's happening, and this is what we're seeing in Job's life. Uh, verse 15. Therefore, I am terrified. Uh, another word might work there is disturbed, but I think the severity of it, uh, terrified, is probably the word that we should use. Therefore, I am terrified in his presence. Uh, when I consider, when I think this, when I understand this, I'm afraid of him. Uh, while Job wants to appear before God, he would be terrified to do so. Why? Because he would be challenging God. Uh, the principle that we have here, there are many who think they could correct God. That they could, uh, the phrase colloquialism, we could straighten God out, straighten out God, uh, that we could improve our lives. But instead, they certainly do not want to appear before God in a, de- in a defiant mood. Job is correct. Fearing God is our proper attitude. Verse 16, For God made my heart weak, made it faint, And the Almighty terrifies or disturbs me. It's the same word as we have in verse 15. Therefore, I am terrified. And the Almighty terrifies me. Verse 17. So we conclude this uh, thought because verses 15, 16, and 17 really go go together. Verse 17. I'm going to start the verse with yet or but. Uh, It's not causal, it's but or yet. I have not been silenced from or by the presence of darkness. Uh, The presence of darkness here would be uh, the difficulties in his life. Uh, and uh, And he did not hide deep darkness from my face. A better translation of this, and I'll give it to you at least twice. Yet I have not been silenced by the darkness or by the trouble. Remember, darkness has been described as the adversity. He's surrounded by adversity, by this darkness. Yet I have not been silenced by the darkness, by the trouble, nor by the thick darkness or the gloom that covered my face. So the gloom is uh, not necessarily covering him, but it's uh, his, uh, his attitude, his mood. It's gloomy. And so he says it covers my face. Uh, it's uh, another figure of speech. Job is fearful of God. Because Job knows that God is aware of his situation. Job knows God could change that situation. But he has not. God has not changed it. His friends say that God is punishing him because of his sin. But Job knows that that is not not true. Job is simply confused and frustrated by all that is happening. He is afraid. But he is not silenced. He's still speaking. He's still approaching God. Uh, He's not silenced by the disaster, nor silenced by the gloom that covers him or that consumes him. Uh, The principle we have here, Job's confusion and depression has confounded his spiritual understanding. And that sometimes happens to us. Uh, but Job knows, still knows that God has the answer. God commands us to come to him no matter what the situation. We probably find ourselves in similar uh, confusion. Instead of immediately going to the Father, we wonder why certain events are occurring. Then we develop bitterness and doubt. And even uh, a terror of why things are occurring. But God is waiting for us to come to him for comfort 
and answers. And that's Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16 says that we are to go to God. As a matter of fact, uh, let's, let's turn to Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16. Let us, again, better translation, we must. Hebrews 4.16. We must therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help, uh, and to, and find grace to help in need of need to, uh, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to heap, to help in time of need. Okay. Now, we're going to move, return to, uh, the doctrine of suffering. And uh, we'll need to move along rapidly here, which I know you can do. We've actually covered the first uh, five points, and we have ten of them. But let's, uh, let's jump into our doctrine, doctrine of suffering. Uh, I really prefer the, the word in, enduring, enduring difficult. Uh, times, adversity. Uh, but suffering is uh, probably uh, the one that's used most. First of all, you've seen this point. Suffering is a gift from God. Uh, Philippians 1.29. Uh, while you're writing, I'm turning to Philippians. And I can read this to you. Again, <clears throat> You've seen this point. Suffering is a gift from God. <clears throat> Psalm 129. Uh, you could also go to James 1, 2. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Being thankful for everything. Uh, and 18. Uh, but Philippians 1, 29 says... For to you it has been granted, and the word for granted, proper translation, means grant, uh, graciously given. For to you all, he's speaking to the believers in Philippi, for to you all it has been graciously given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to endure, to suffer for his sake, having the same Conflict, which you saw in me, and now hear in me. You saw it, and now you're hearing it. Secondly, in the midst of suffering, God comforts us. Second Corinthians one five. Second Corinthians one five. In the midst of suffering, God comforts us. We will be in Second Corinthians again uh, for our last point. And I want to make sure that you understand that 2 Corinthians is a critical book written to believers who are suffering. Why were they suffering? Because Paul had to verbally correct them in a letter that we don't have, that was not uh, preserved. But he writes this letter... To comfort them. Alright. Don't forget that now. Alright, Second Corinthians verse or chapter one verse five. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, and he's referring to himself and uh also uh his those who are on his team. But he's including the Corinthians as well because they were suffering. For as the suffering of Christ abounds, abounds in us, so our consolation, our comfort also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and deliverance. Notice the word salvation here. That's not the basis for their phase one 
salvation. This is not how they are redeemed. This is for phase two spiritual life. That's what this word for salvation means. It's for spiritual growth. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your spiritual growth. That's what this means, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Now, I just want to make sure you've got that uh, in your mind. We're not talking to unbelievers, because when we get to chapter 7, that can be a little bit difficult. Uh, Point three, God enables us to rejoice in suffering. We read that in 1 Peter 4.12. God enables us to rejoice in suffering. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. God enables us to rejoice in suffering. These are very short points. Verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to examine you. Uh, A better word probably is to test you as though some unusual, some strange thing happened to you. Uh, uh, Being tested in the spiritual life is not unusual. Expected is what he's saying. Verse 13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Uh, his hardships, his adversity, in order that his glory is revealed. So, uh, so when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Point four, suffering is a blessing because it brings eternal rewards. Uh, Matthew five is the, uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, part of it. Second uh, Corinthians four seventeen is where we'll go. Second Timothy two twelve and Revelation twenty two twelve. We're not going to go to every one of those. As a matter of fact, we did go to all of them, I believe, uh, when we first started this doctrine. But suffering is a blessing because it brings eternal rewards. Uh, Matthew 5.12 is the focus of that. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples that they should not um, be bothered, worried by uh, the hardships that they have because uh, it brings rewards. Now, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Back to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4.17. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, is wearing away. Yet the inward man, our soul, is being renewed day by day. Verse 17. For our light affliction. This is easy. This uh, Paul says it's easy. What you're encountering is simple. Uh, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, phase two testing, this is our spiritual life, is for a moment, is working, is producing for us far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Point five. God sees suffering as a tool to accomplish his purpose, both in his son and also in his children. Point five here. God sees suffering as a tool to accomplish his purposes, both in his son, Hebrews 2.10, and in his children. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom all uh, are all things, 
in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation. And this is happens to be phase three. This is glorification, their deliverance, to make the captain, their leadership of their glorification, perfect, complete, through sufferings, through in, uh, endurance. This is not, this, the word salvation, it's the deliverance at glorification, at the, um, when we, uh, are resurrected. And then in his children, 1 Peter 1 6, 1 Peter is right behind James, which is right behind Hebrews. So, 1 Peter 1, 6, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this, and again, Peter is talking about glorification here. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness, the proof, the testing of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it, your faith, is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his appearance. Six, we must not be discouraged in suffering or adversity. I just read Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. Uh, my finger here is still in First Peter, so I'm just going to slip over to Hebrew, Hebrews twelve. We must not be discouraged in suffering or adversity. Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. And then Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, Hebrews 12. I know some of you may be uh, hurrying to get to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, we also, believers, also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud, a group of witnesses. In other words, those who have gone before us, we have their testimony. And the author here says we're surrounded by their testimonies. So great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside. Let us take... Uh, let us lay, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. This is for believers. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's, how is that set before us? By God. This is the path that God has for us. Looking unto Jesus. How do we do that? Looking unto Jesus, the author. This is our... Uh, the leadership again, the author, the leadership and the finisher of our faith. Um, and again, this is what we believe. Who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Point seven. Suffering. Suffering matures us as Christians in the present. Uh, James 1, 2, 4 says that uh, we should count it all joy when we encounter trials and testing. So suffering matures us as Christians in the present. Then the next section we'll see, or the next point, will continue. My brethren, count it all joy, James 1, 2, when you all fall into various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there we are. Point eight, suffering enables us to be glorified with Christ in the future. So suffering matures us as Christians in the present, James 1, 2 through 4. And suffering enables us to be glorified with Christ in the future. Romans 8, 17. Don't worry, we're right on track. We're going to make it. Don't get any cramps in your hand. Romans 8.17 Suffering enables us to be glorified with Christ in the future. I'll start at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness, and this is a present sense, it con- it con- he continuously bears witness with our spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, uh, comforts us. He's our advocate. He's our helper. Uh, he is the uh, the support that we have in our spiritual life. Uh, the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are uh, in the, we are in union with Christ and we are children of God. You have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be a child of God. Not all mankind is a child of God. Verse 17. And if children than heirs. See, this tells us that we have to be a believer if we're going to be a member of the family of God. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs. On the one hand, heirs of God, and on the other hand, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. All right, we've got two more points, and I believe we can do this pretty quickly, although uh, verse 9, that point 9 is going to be, it's going to take some concentration. Even if suffering comes because of sin, confession turns the suffering into blessing. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 12. And you can also use James 1, 2 through 4 here as well. Count it all joy. Uh, the trust, the uh, trials, uh, the, the testing, the discipline is designed to bring us back, uh, what we might call on an even keel. Back to our spiritual, uh, path that we should be on. Uh, but Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians seven, Second Corinthians seven. Now we remember our background for Second Corinthians. That is that um, the Corinthians had received a letter. They had received the fir- First Corinthians, but there we believe there's possibly two other. Uh, Letters that uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The one that is addressed in chapter in Second Corinthians is lost. Uh, there's possibly another one that was lost as well. But in Second Corinthians, uh, Paul discovers that they are suffering, and he's writing them a letter. To encourage them, and we saw that in Second Corinthians one, five, six, and following. Now, when we arrive in Second Corinthians seven, believe it or not, as a matter of fact, you should read Second Corinthians and get the sense for the suffering, the the uh, the difficulty, the sorrow. That's another word, sorrow. We're going to see it here in a moment. 
there was sorrow because of God, uh, because of Paul's letter. He uh, verbally um, corrected them. Second Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. For even if I made you sorry, if I made you uh, grieve, if I made you uh, feel bad, uh, if you'd like something very simple here, with my letter, this was the harsh letter that he sent them, I do not regret it. I, I don't feel remorse over it. Though I did at the time. He wrote it. We do this every now and then. He wrote a letter to correct them and sent it. And then afterward he said, Oh boy, I probably was too harsh. Well, he found out later that he wasn't too harsh. That it had fit the purpose. That they had received it. And it caused them to change their minds. To correct their spiritual lives. All right, now I'm going to see if I can read my way through this. For even if I made you sorry, made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it uh, at the time that I wrote it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while, not for a a long time, just briefly. Verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to a change of mind, to repentance. Why? It brought them back to their spiritual moorings. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner, according to uh, a godly sense, we could say, according to a godly standard, in order that you might, and I'm going to put the negative there, that you might not suffer loss, from us, meaning they had, they wouldn't lose uh, rewards, or nor would they lose a re- that, their relationship with uh, uh, Paul and his team. Verse ten: For godly sorrow produces repentance, uh, uh, produces repentance, leading to sorrow uh, to salvation. Now. Verse 10 is used for the gospel. And it is not referring to, it's not given to unbelievers. This is given to believers. So it says, for sorrow according to a godly standard, is how this should be translated. It produces, it works repentance, a change of mind towards salvation. This salvation is... Phase two, spiritual growth. It got them back on the right track spiritually. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death, carnality. And so, even if suffering comes because of sin, confession turns the suffering into blessing. So, uh, point nine is critical. It's a little difficult with 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 8 through 12, because we hear so many people say that uh, uh, this uh, sorrow, a godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. He's talking about phase two salvation, spiritual growth. And then 10, suffering is designed to demonstrate the grace of God. We're in 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians 12. I'm going to have to teach Second Corinthians 7 again sometime because it's a difficult passage to understand. It, because hearing godly sorrow leading to repentance, to salvation, that's misleading. Because salvation there should be translated deliverance. And the deliverance is spiritual growth, phase two. So ten, suffering is designed to demonstrate the grace of God. Second Corinthians twelve, nine through ten. Uh, nine. 
I'm going to go to verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Believe that this is a demon. A lot of people have a lot of ideas, but it's fairly clear here, I think. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, he said, no, you just lean on my grace. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doctrine of suffering, enduring. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these passages. We're thankful for the... Uh, the suffering, the enduring that we do in our lives. And we pray that as James tells us, we should count it all joy. Now, that's very difficult for us to do, but we should realize it's for our benefit and it's for the glory of God. We're thankful for the lessons we learned from Job as well. As he uh, endures this situation, he doesn't know why. And Father, we don't know why very often, but we do know, as James tells us, that it brings us, uh, builds the endurance in our lives and in our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.